Hello, everyone. Welcome to Arash's World. We have a special episode today with Pamela Brinker. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me here with you. That is great. So thank you for being on, on the show. And we have a very important topic that we're going to talk about, but also uh, your book. But before we dive into that, how would you briefly describe yourself here for our audience? I consider myself a being. I don't define myself by my role as a mom or a parent or a writer, and I don't define myself by accomplishments or successes. So I'm just a human being, just like you and everybody else. <laughs> That's wonderful. That's great. Yes. Uh, so uh, we're going to talk about your book, but you are a, a psychotherapist, uh, a mom, as you mentioned, and an author. We have the book. Here is uh, Conscious Bravery, Caring for Someone with Addiction. And um, before we really also dive into this, um, there are already quite a few things that I find amazing that the word conscious is there. It's not, not just being brave, but kind of a meta awareness of that, uh, uh, of that courage that it takes. So that's, that's very important. And uh, that you're focusing um, on addiction, but on those who give care to people with addiction, which I find also very interesting too, because um often there isn't enough about them. It's about the addiction itself. And so uh, let's talk about it. I love your phrase meta-awareness because <laughs> to me, how we do anything, how we care for someone that we love who struggles with substance use issues or mental health or how we help someone we love who has cancer or got in a car accident, all of those things have to do with how aware we are, how conscious we are. And it's not just in the pleasant moments or even the more challenging moments, right, Arash? Mm -hmm. It's during even the most harrowing devastations. And so to me, because of the experiences I've had in recent years, I've learned that consciousness means being awake, aware, and alive in any given moment. And so every moment is an opportunity to practice, whether I'm meditating or doing yoga or walking in nature, talking with you, a new friend, or whether I'm answering a phone call and having to pause and breathe consciously and reassess, what will I do in this devastating, shocking situation? Yes, and it's it's very liberating. And I, I use the, the term mindful often, but uh, the problem is also is uh, the same with like labels, uh, where you say like roles and so on, uh, that happens with words too. And when sometimes I use certain words, I, uh, I'm aware that people don't think of it in the same way as I do. Right. So, uh, but the same what you're describing, I, I, I look at as mindful and just just being aware, giving your space to feel certain emotions and not uh, jumping to, to quick judgment or conclusions, but just let, let it flow, I think. That is, that is really important. And not uh, have it sta stagnating within you or festering within you or just like opening up whatever feeling it is, especially the negative ones, I think. They're, they're, they're the more, uh, they're the spicy ones. They add the flavor to it, to it all. <laughs> Yes. And, and I love what you're saying. No labels. Sometimes there aren't words for our experience, but we do want to honor them, honor our experiences and honor our emotions and our emotional states, 
which for me as a therapist are different. But yes, I do I do appreciate and honor the word mindful and people use it for different things. It means I'm being mindful, I'm being conscious, I'm being aware, I'm being present. But I love I love the word whole being. It's really two words put together. But to me, we want to really kind of shift from mindfulness because our minds are already too full. <laughs> and, and let this phrase that we've used, mindfulness, morph into something that actually is more expansive and means more what we're actually trying to say, which is let's be whole being aware. Let's be aware from our whole beings. You know, we can say it in different ways. <laughs> yeah, I, I use the term holistic, but again, that's the same thing. It, it uh, reminds me of this uh, these lyrics from Emerson, Lake and Palmer. They have a song and I hope I don't misquote it now here, um, but uh, you don't have to be well to be wealthy, but you have to be whole to be holy, which mm. uh, I thought kind of fits in here in our discussion. But Love um, it. <laughs> great. Uh, great. So um, yeah. So you're you're talking about personal life experience as well as your professional life experience, and talking about holistic, and you are integrating them in uh, in in very fruitful, productive ways, and that are going to help many many others. Um, so uh, you yourself, you have two sons who two sons who are uh, who are suffering from mental health issues and and substance mm -hmm. uh, abuse or addiction. And uh, that, I think, gives it a whole different perspective on things, because it's one thing to theoretically know things and academically study them and know all these theories. It's another thing to really go through them and experience them. So uh, just briefly, what, what would be your, your personal experience and how did you manage it with or combine it with your professional uh, background? Mm. To me conscious bravery is courage in action. And I didn't have the capacity for that about 12 years ago. I had had a life that was like a lot of a lot of people's lives, you know, mixed with a lot of salt and pepper, different kinds of things, the yin, the yang, a lot of grief, but a lot of goodness and a lot of, um, I don't know, just I was very satisfied and felt like I really was doing my doing what I had dreamed of as a psychotherapist and had had really had a lot of fun and success as an athlete, competitive athlete, and just fun as a musician and things like that. Oh, cool. But then um, I, I was married to a wonderful man who was diagnosed with grade four glioblastoma brain cancer. And he died a year and three months later. And um, so my two sons just went into a state of grief and mourning that I didn't completely understand even though we were open as a family and we communicated the three of us really candidly throughout his decline in health over that little over a year period of time. But when he passed, my sons, I believe, were trying to take care of me and take care of themselves. And so even though they were 13 and 16 and they turned to each other and they turned to drugs and alcohol as an answer a solution to the pain they were going through. No one wants to become addicted. No one wants to have mental health challenges, but they had really challenged grief. Um, I don't I don't want to label it, but it was grief deeper than a lot of typical mourning is. And so within months, they had become dependent upon the... Um, Vyvanse and Adderall they'd gotten prescribed they had experimented with their doctor with both and those are stimulants to treat ADD 
attention deficit disorder and ADHD, the hyperactivity part of attention deficit. And they're two different things. But at any rate, my sons doubled their doses on their own, their prescribed doses, and were also drinking alcohol. And they started turning to psychedelics and things to just kind of escape from the pain they were experiencing. And within three and a half, four years, they became addicted to methamphetamines. So street crystal meth, um, different kinds of meth that they would get and they would still use stimulants and other things. So it was really harrowing for me. I, having been someone who never used drugs, I I just didn't even know. I had to educate myself about the world. I was turning to every book, every resource, different kinds of therapists and therapies. You know, I did psychotherapy, acupuncture, chiropractic, and I was doing my typical meditation and yoga practices. But really what I found is that I had to change. I had to morph. And I had to transform in short order. And it wasn't easy at all. I floundered and I messed up and I yelled at them and I regret it. And then I would find the calm again. And I would say, hey, can we talk? I'm really sorry. What's going on? And um, anyway, I made a lot of mistakes as a parent. And so I decided to use not only what I had taught all my clients for years and years, these tools and practices that work, but I started modifying them for myself and for my, my clients at the time, because I continued to practice as a therapist and as a workshop leader. And you know what I found was that these practices work, but they're unique to every individual and to every situation. And so I started really embodying this. There's not a one size fits all to anything. You know, people don't come into substance use a certain way and people don't get out of it and recover one certain way either. And so that's what I would love our listeners to know. And what I really hope that readers of my book will get that there is not a one size fits all but there are specific tools and practices that work to help us through the most challenging situations, the most torturous agony. And I've, I've experienced it all. I'll tell you that, you know, they, my sons were homeless with, without my choice or wanting them to be, they were assaulted. They were um, involved with drug dealers and, they just had some of the most harrowing situations. They would be beat up. They would come home. I would find one of my sons in bed in a, in a pool of blood, you know? And so just horrible, horrible things happen that people don't talk about, you know, maybe we tell our therapist or our best friend, but who talks about this? The, the ongoing challenges of someone who's trying to get clean and trying to find their way and trying to live in loving support with their family, but who continues to, to flail and bump, you know, find very bumpy ground and fall and try to pick themselves up. So. Yes, absolutely. You know, and uh, I, I love your, your uh, the definition of addiction here too, in your book. And uh, so as, as a person's solutions to the troubles. And so I, I, I think that, that that's really important because we, we are looking for um, ways of escaping pain of the, um, things that we think we do not we do not have a connection we're looking through it and we can't find it we we it it, it could be pretty much anything and that's that's one of the, the the main points I like to to give to people too it's like it could be your work it could be exercise it could be I mean and substance abuse is so much worse because it does this real havoc to your to your body and your mind but the the root source the problem is is often similar. At the same time, what you're saying is absolutely true. Every child is different. 
and every every client that you see and every struggle they have is different. And so I don't know where we get the idea from that we have a theory and this is the medicine and even our bodies are different inside and outside. So if you give a medication to someone, they might have an allergic reaction to it or they, it might not work for them or it works better with another one. And so uh, th that whole notion of one size fits all, it's, it's really outdated and it's ineffective. And just to give another example here with as, as a parent, there is no good uh, uh, parenting manual because we can't include every possible child in every situation and everyone reacts differently. So we're struggling and there's all these experts on, on parenting when they speak. And I, I've had them on my podcast too. And I think at the same time, yeah, but these are just suggestions, you know, maybe, but uh, who knows, it might not apply to you. So true. I love that you're speaking to this because parenting, I'm passionate about mental health. I'm passionate about coming up with a different word for codependency. In other words, I think we want to attach to our children in healthy ways, <laughs> not see this thing that we do, this enabling that we're tending to lean toward or managing. That's not a disease. That's a normal human response to a very challenging situation that we find ourselves in. And so parenting is an inexact science. But, yes. you know, I think you named part of what the solution is to be conscious, to be present, and to really transcend some of these old modalities that don't work and figure out how can, as my friend Brad Reedy says, so I love Brad Reedy. He has his own podcast, um, Finding You. He's written a book called The Audacity to Be You and another book called The Journey of the Heroic Parent. But he and my friend Kevin McCauley and other people are really helping us to uncover what is conscious parenting. It may or may not even be healthy parenting because we're trying to find our way through some really crazy patches of mud, bogs, even quicksand, you know, and we're in the forest and we feel like we're alone half the time, even though we might have support groups or therapists or whatever. And so we're trying to find our way. And so how do we do it? We become more aware and we, we learn how to connect, right? Arash, in a way that isn't necessarily standard. You know, we are connecting with these beautiful, unique beings. My sons both have neurodiversity. A lot of our young people and a lot of us do, you know, I consider myself neurodiverse. And what I mean by that is my brain doesn't operate the way that maybe my neighbors does, but I don't know anyone whose brain operates the same exact way or whose emotions do. And so I like quirky people who know who they truly are and are authentic, you know? And so Perfect. that's the kind of parent I want to be. I want to be real. I want to be present. I want to be able to be tender when I need to and compassionate. And I want to know how to jump in and walk alongside or even run alongside my loved ones when they need me. And so to me, I, I had to learn that because my tendency was to do the latter, to jump in, you know, as an athlete, I was a, a spring into action kind of person. And, and I was a swimmer and a triathlete. And that's what we do. You know, we just think, okay, work harder, train longer, right? But I had to learn how to, to do what I'm really noticing I need to do now, pause, <laughs> slow down, breathe consciously, and tap into awareness. What's my what's my loved one experiencing? Can I have empathy? Can I pause and listen and say, "Wow, that sounds hard." Hmm. What What do you think you'll do about that? Or maybe not even jump to what we What will you do? 
But I said, what will you do about that? Because I want to empower them. And I hope our listeners will see that too. We don't have to offer solutions. They may or may not be asking for them. Most of the time they're not. And so we, we want to offer solutions when they're not even being requested. So I've had to learn how to pause and be and be in discomfort and become more comfortable with discomfort and then wait and wait through even some of the toughest moments when I think the solution needs to occur within a few minutes or an hour. But sometimes when my loved ones, my sons come up with their own solutions, they're better and they buy into them more. And I mentioned Kevin McCauley, he is the didactic person for all the Meadows treatment centers. And they're doing a bunch of new and different things like with trauma and looking at unique people's needs and trying to offer a lot of different opportunities along the way in terms of treatment solutions. And so I think of that and I think, wow, therapy is a lot like parenting. I want to be able to have a bunch of different options at the ready and to not have to rely on one mode of operating that I really prefer. I want to offer what my loved one wants and needs from me. Yeah. And it, it's often a matter of control because we, we would like to have control. We would like to control others, especially our children. And that causes frustration when they're out of our control. So they're not behaving as we would like them to, to do. And, uh, and in many cases also suffering because we say, well, but you shouldn't be doing this. This is not good for you and, and so on. But I, I think there, there are other elements too. It's like, because we're trying to also fix their problems. We're trying to help them but in that sense, we're actually not helping them. And what, what I like, what you're alluding to and how I understand it is to give them the uh, awareness, the support and saying the presence, I am there for you, but I will just be here if you need me. You need to kind of figure it out. I can give you advice, but probably if, if you don't, it's even better. So then they <laughs> figure it out for themselves. But that's so hard. It's like, it's like seeing somebody who's like falling right in front of you and you know that uh, you think, you know, you could stop them, but you can't uh, again, but it's, it's, it's difficult. It's very difficult, especially as a parent, because we lose that objectivity we have with other people, with our kids, uh, just a completely different ballgame to use a mm. sports metaphor. <laughs> oh, you hit it on the head hit the nail on the head with so many things. It is so hard as a parent. Mm -hmm. And so I'm sure you've experienced this too. I try to bring compassion into my world for myself first, mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. if I don't have compassion for myself, I can't have it for my sons or my husband or my friends who are struggling. And so it is difficult. So oftentimes I say, wow, this is so hard. Huh? Mm -hmm. Gosh, this is the part of my story where I get really anxious and this is a part of my day when I tend to go to panic or, wow, I really feel like running. Mm -hmm. huh? I want to curl up in a ball. Mm -hmm. So I tend to notice the things I just named are the responses of our brainstem, our nervous system. Our sympathetic nervous system wants to flee or fight or curl up in a ball and pretend like we're disappeared or dead or we fawn, which we try to which means we try to please others. And those are not the healthiest responses. And so when we want control, you mentioned the major C word, the, the antidote to control is consciousness. 
It's to be aware, to go inside and say, hey, the only thing I can control or the one thing I can control is me. <laughs> I'm going to breathe right now or I'm going to get my feet on the ground. I put a post up on social media today. You can check out if you want. I put a photo of my gold boots, my gold sparkly boots. And I said, we got to put our boots on the ground because that's what I've had to do the last month. The last month has been really challenging and I've wanted more control, but haven't had it at the ready. And so I've had to work on finding that capacity, that control in myself. So I love those three, three C mm -hmm. words, control. Mm -hmm. If I want control, I find how to be conscious and I find the capacity I do have. And just, just as a side note, my experience has been those who try to control others the most are the ones who are the, the least in control of their own lives themselves. I've oh, seen that true. in many cases. So, so, true. so, so that reflects mm -hmm. in that way. But I, I think uh, self-care is, is hugely important. Mm -hmm. uh, we think of it, uh, many think of it as uh, being selfish. I should be devoting all my time to, to my career, to my kids and, and so on. But no, it's, it's actually, and I, I grew up in Germany. So the work harder mantra is, is always in the back of my head subconsciously. It's like work hard, work hard. But then I was like, if I relaxed and if I like spent time with myself and if I explored stuff, and then went back to work, I would work so much better and be so much more productive. So it's not just the uh, the kind of like uh, rat on, uh, on his wheel of like constantly working, but it's like, let's stop and let's take a look and take stock and then take the path forward, which is a much better way. And also for helping others to make sure that we're okay and then we can help others. It just like the uh, when they, in, a, in an accident, you, you give yourself the oxygen first, so then you can help others. And I think that is hugely important. Such wise words, really. Absolutely. Self-care. I have a whole chapter mm -hmm. on in my book on self-care. The example of the I, tree. I think that's yeah, wonderful. Thank yeah, thank you. <laughs> I'm glad you like it. I, I like the the tree of life. And I like to imagine that we have to really be a tall tree and anchor and root ourselves into the earth and ground down while simultaneously reaching up to what's greater. And then everything in between, you know, we find our capacity in our, in our essence or kind of our trunk to carry on. And that connects us to what's greater, call it God or source, the universe, the beloved, the divine, whatever anyone wants to call it, nature. But really, I love that um, that you are so aware, and I can tell you practice it, <laughs> of, of the importance of this, what I call necessary luxury. Self-care can feel like a luxury, especially when, the, when we're in the middle of harrowing situations or, or traumatic times. But for me, that was that was my way into my life, not out of what I didn't want, but it was the way into my new life. And isn't that true for all of us? We're always embarking on a new life and having to die to former sides of ourselves that don't serve us anymore. That's what happened to me, at least. I had to let go of and actually die to some selves of, of some parts of myself that did not serve me anymore. And so, yeah, I did that partly through self-care and through all the different aspects of self-care that, that work for me. And, and each person finds their own. 
Yeah, our body does it naturally, right? I think the, the cells die after seven years. So we are actually regenerating ourselves within <laughs> our body physically. So why not also emotionally and spiritually? I completely agree with that. And uh, your, your view also of like dealing with uh, whether it's addiction or, or any, any kind of issues, mental health issues that we're all going through collectively, especially these mm-hmm. days, much more so than previously, I would think. Um, but it's not feeling compelled, not feeling, uh, not giving into that craving, for example, when uh, you're looking for, for addiction and rewiring ourselves. And I can see that kind of, uh, as you're saying, so the physical part, the mental part, emotional, spiritual, a holistic view of rearranging things and making sure that the parts that don't work like you say it's like okay well let's deal with it or let's eliminate it and create a whole new whole again new being that is going to serve everyone well not just ourselves but others as well and the the other point i'd like i talked about control lack of control and people are controlling happiness is the same if we are happy we will uh, exude happiness and so if you want your loved ones to be happy you have to be happy first. Mm, beautiful. Yeah, I found that, and I'm sure you have too, that if I'm not anchored and rooted in contentment, how mm. can I be a role model mm. for my sons or my clients that they can get through tough times of anxiety, depression, trauma, any kind of challenge? How can they know that it can mm. be done? So, I, you know, to be... <laughs> to be true to who we are, our very humanness, like we were talking about, and the beings that we are, we want to get the help and support we need. And so I have a little section in the book called Ask for Help, because it is so hard for most of us. Mm-hmm. But it's a sacred thing to receive help and to give help. Mm-hmm. We forget that we rob others of that sacred exchange when we don't let them help us. Mm-hmm. And we don't reach out for help, then we're we're really um, doing a disservice to ourselves. And so you betcha, self-care, how to be happy. Happiness is cultivated and I commit to it and I guard my happiness with my life. Mm-hmm. Because what? why not? I want to go through this life with vibrancy and I want to be able to live on both ends of the continuum and everything in between, which means feeling the most sorrowful grief and also experiencing the most ecstatic joy. And I don't really give value of one over against the other. One of my best friends, Daryl and I were talking about this the other day, and he really is not quite yet convinced that suffering is part of joy. (laughs) I'm absolutely convinced. I've said it many times, yeah. I'm I'm working on it with him. Good, yeah. (laughs) Absolutely true. I mean, see, it's the, the best lessons have come out of suffering. And so even the word resiliency, I mean, where did it come from? It isn't like, you know, you don't like wake up and say, oh, I feel resilient today. No, you have to go the path. You have to climb that mountain. And yes, Mm -hmm. it is rewarding if you are aware of it. And uh, again, the meta-awareness and Mm -hmm. you you learn the lessons instead of being trapped or not looking at things. And I think one of the the problems is our um, discomfort with uh, um, discomfort be uncomfortable or with fear of facing fear. And uh, I, I see uh, many people in, in any walk of life and pretty much all ages that are afraid. And whether it's what others will think of me, what will my boss think, what will my parents think, what will my kids think? And um, we, we, we should, uh, we should uh, step into that and, and, and feel it and uh, experience it 
so that we can free ourselves from it. But otherwise, yes. it's just there. It's like this heavy backpack we're carrying around everywhere we go. And we're never happy then. Yeah, so powerful, Arash. To experience fear doesn't mean necessarily to be overtaken by it. That's <laughs> our minds. And bless our minds. You know, they're, they're wonderful. They try to help us and serve us. But when we ruminate, at least I find and with my clients, that when we ruminate over things, then we really perk it up and take it up a notch. And we're not just experiencing the innocence of fear which is kind of an alert oh danger watch out and it's innocent it's just trying to help us mm -hmm. but when we ruminate over things then they become much worse and we can make ourselves panicked or even terrorized but instead as you're saying and this is you're singing my song my friend because i believe that we want to view fear as an advisor and practice experiencing fear so feel it in our meditation or out on a walk. Say, okay, I'm going to take a moment and really go back to that fear I felt a week ago. I got through it then. How did I get through it? Huh, I let it be inside of me. And then I let it flow through me. Like Michael Singer talks about in his new book and in The Untethered Soul. We let things be real and we experience things. We experience all the most challenging emotions like shame and feeling states of shame that are prolonged. But then maybe we work really hard at it or we work with a skilled therapist in letting that move through us and see that we did the best we could. And so if we're revisiting fear from a week ago and we're practicing allowing it in ourselves in this moment, we might find, wow, I can really weather this. I can really handle fear. And this is so important for our listeners and for my readers and anyone who wants to achieve a new level of true enlightenment. To me, that's mm -hmm. being present, being fully present, even in the toughest stuff. Mm -hmm. And we can do tough stuff, you know, mm -hmm. when we really allow ourselves to, to come out of that brainstem and back into, we reset, we basically rewire, mm -hmm. you know, and mm -hmm. we, we practice over time and we become better and more skillful at handling fear at be, being comfortable more comfortable with discomfort and you know yeah, it's just not a wanting, skill not wanting too much at the, at once i mean it's like in in in, in small doses uh, works really well and i think or or again giving it the time it needs because a lot of the the fears that i had i would uh, like you're saying and I, I thought i was one of the few people but maybe we are the few people but i would actually look for it when I'm calm, I'm like, okay, what is it I'm afraid of? I want to experience it. And in the past, I would shun it. It's like, no, don't go there. I don't want to think about this. And it's like, but then now it's like, okay, uh, I'm relaxed now. I'm safe. Uh, and let's, let's uh, kind of go through them. And what happens is with enough time and practice, you realize that the fear just dissipates and it goes away. And then you are in that same situation. And you say, why was I afraid of this person or this situation or or this, uh, uh, the, what's happening around me, there is no reason to be afraid. And so uh, once you get to that point, it really frees you up. It's like, well, I could react in this way or that way. So you have more options. And I think mm -hmm. when we also help others and we're caregivers, um, that's something that would, then we choose the best option. We're not like instinctively reacting. It's like, oh, you shouldn't do this. You shouldn't feel this way. But rather like, exploring it staying with it and being much more effective in 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 that uh, that help that we are suggestion that we're providing to others beautiful staying with it exploring being curious you know those of us who are trained in what we call attachment based therapy 
and I am. Well, all that means is that we look at how did we grow up? Did we have secure attachment? Did we have avoidant attachment to our parents? What did they experience the generation before us? You know, you mentioned Germany. My um, mother's mother was a German speaking person from Russia who came over to this country. And she was not, she came over to this country in the twenties and she was not allowed to speak in, outside of her home in Oklahoma because there was still all this fear about Germans and so forth in this country. And, and so my mom grew up with some fear that I really didn't understand until much later in life that had to do with her upbringing and the way her mom parented her and her dad parented her. And so we're dealing with so much stuff or you know, we're not just dealing with our own patterns and trying to break them and our own, you know, rewiring. We're dealing with ancestry and we're dealing with a society that doesn't really champion us when we talk about our mental health issues publicly or outside of boundaries, you know? And so we really want to break not just our own internal patterns, but break stigma you know, that's in our, our society and globally. Mm -hmm. and, and stigma, everyone is, is affected by them and it affects everyone at the same time. And mm -hmm. when you look at the stigma of, of people who are addicted, of course, but there's also the stigma of the caregiver. And so you're expected to be always there. You're expected to always help them. But that, that, mm -hmm. is, that is putting also pressure on them. And um, I, I just recently watched The, the Father, the, the movie with uh, Anthony Hopkins, who has the dementia or Alzheimer's. And so the interesting thing about the film is from his point of view. So he's, he's confused. He confuses people. He's not sure. We're not sure if what happened is real or he just made it up. But while it's moving in that sense, I also thought of his daughter who is taking care of him. And at some point where she says, you know what, I can't. And her husband who says, you know, send him to a home because this is not right. And they're both correct, but they feel this guilt and shame I, because I'm expected to take care of this person. So it's, it's, it's complex, it's very complex, but the stigma is not helping. It makes it much you got worse. It. You got it. That's brilliant. It is complicated. And there isn't just one answer. Sometimes mm -hmm. I might say to my sons, okay, I'll do that. Um, I'll walk alongside you. I'll give you a ride there. But um, I'm confident that you can go in and do that thing, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And so I'll just be with you in that. Other times I might say, no, I'm sorry, I can't do that right now. And it isn't necessarily to teach them a lesson. You know, our boundaries are not to make other people be a certain way or to control them. Our boundaries are for our own sake so that we can be authentic and be our best true selves. And I've had to learn that the hard way, but I'm finally coming around. I'm a slow learner, I'll tell you that. But um, I am learning that limits are helpful for other people. If I say, I can't today, but I could on Thursday and then, you know, figure it out until then, do what you can, because mm -hmm. I know you can, mm -hmm. you know, and so sometimes leaving things kind of in the gray area and a slightly bit open-ended as parents or as loved ones is truly helpful for ourselves. It gives us a little bit of a pause, but it also gives the ones we're trying to help again, more volition, more capacity to see that they're capable of some things along this way. And I'm talking about people that, you know, my, my sons have had tremendous challenges. They've been diagnosed with some of the big, the big ones like schizophrenia, 
you know, a couple of times, both of them, even though it turns out it was really more residual symptoms from drug use. But I do have some friends whose sons and daughters have been um, living with schizophrenic symptoms for years and years. And so it doesn't look like it's going away. And how do we help those folks? We want to give them as much capacity as they can have you know, and because it, it is their own birthright to make choices. People with anxiety become less anxious when they learn how to practice tools and skills that help them, not just rely upon medications or upon others to, to take care of them. So again, I love what you're saying. And this is hard, hard stuff. And I might get, some, you might get some chat comments or something about some of the way I'm saying this. So I hope I'm being clear, but again, I'm really trying to get to the empowerment that we experience when we make our own choices and the ways that we can help our loved ones empower themselves. Now that doesn't mean we don't want to help them get treatment. You know, I'm all about help your loved one get into treatment, into some form of treatment. And one of my new friends Walter Wolf wrote a book called The Right Rehab because it's so hard to find places sometimes, especially if money is a, a problem or not as much of a resource. So how do we find places? You know, that's really a very individual thing too, but we want to partner with our loved ones. And I talk in my book about one of the choices one of my sons made once was to go to a substance abuse primary treatment center when really he was having more mental health primary issues. But I told myself, this is what he's choosing right now. He'll buy into this better if he's making this choice. We can take on the mental health challenges after he gets clean and sober. And that is what happened. And so sometimes giving giving our children the ability to choose the college they want to go to, maybe not the one they got the scholarship for or whatever. Choices like that are important. Then they can make they can make the mistakes that they need to make to learn the lessons. <laughs> and it, and it doesn't matter if you learn quickly or slowly or as long as the lesson is there and we can connect with it and i like what you're saying about instinctive reflex because it becomes part of you and re respond in that way you don't even have to think about it it's part of your your whole being and i think that's important but it takes a lot of practice it doesn't come overnight and i think that's what what people in in uh, nowadays with technology they want quick fixes it doesn't work that way. You want to lose weight quickly or, or you want to fix your problems, your your issues. And, and that that's not it. That's really not it. Um, so if you really, truly want things to work out, you just have to give it the time and put in the effort, of course, and also relax at the same time. So it's, it's, it's a bit of everything. <laughs> it's true. And it sounds kind of complicated, but it's yeah. to me, what you're talking about is how do we cultivate conscious bravery? And it is cultivated like anything, just like weight loss and healthy eating habits or beginning to move our bodies more and exercise and find joy in it rather than drudgery. You know, it all comes about over time as we both value it more and we see results. You know, I, I tell a lot of my clients, just go for a walk for 10 minutes if you don't feel like doing any kind of movement, just go outside and get in nature and just see what happens. Be curious. And so that 10 minutes then builds and the next day they think, wow, I really loved that yesterday. Today I can do 20 minutes and I am a person that walks rather than, oh, I haven't walked in a week. What does it matter? You know? And so the more we do something, the more embedded the skill becomes and it does become more innate and conscious bravery is like that. And so when we want to be able to be super brave, 
and we know we're going to have to be down the road, we can work toward that beginning with little tiny steps today. Yeah, without forcing ourselves too much, because that just mm-hmm. reminded me, I, I heard somebody, somebody told me that they have a meditation practice and they do it like four times a week, but they want to do it five times a week. And it's so hard. And I say, well, why? <laughs> you, you're okay. If, if you don't want to do it the fifth day, then don't do it. No, it's that kind of like, I'm forcing myself to be good. I'm forcing myself. And in some ways we do need to push. I think the push is there, but not forcing yourself. And that kind of, that goes back into self-care. It's like the whole point is for you to connect with yourself, not to push yourself in uh, or force yourself in a different direction that you don't want to go to. And Exactly. And important. we can practice meditating in life. For me, when I don't have time for that extra meditation, I say, I'm going to make my life a meditation. I'm going to be so awake and so aware for the next 20 minutes that mm-hmm. I'm, it's like I'm meditating. And yeah. so I feel that way talking with you. Yeah. We have this fun interchange, yeah. this fun interplay. Yeah. It's really flowing. And, uh-huh. and it's a form of, oops, sorry. It's a form of maybe not meditation, but of being fully present yeah. and tapped yes. in. Absolutely. And, and let me just remind everyone, so conscious bravery, the definition I have from my book is handling life challenges head on. I really like that. Oh, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Anything why, to add to not? that definition? Yeah. Um, I guess I would say that conscious bravery is cultivated like a garden. And so, yeah, we handle the challenges head on, but we begin, we begin by, as Liz Gilbert says, just being like a farmer and just tending to the garden every day digging in the dirt, you know, pulling out the weeds, taking care of some of the uh, flowers or the growth that needs to be trimmed. You know, we just work it, but we work it with some level of gratitude, right? Mm -hmm. Some level of joy and appreciation that we even have the opportunity. That's what I do. Every day I, I come at some point, almost every day, I feel like, wow, this is really hard. This is really heavy. This is very challenging. And I try to allow that experience in the moment. And then I I usually find that I counter it with an innate capacity now to find gratitude. Like, wow, I have this opportunity. Huh, I wonder how this will go. Hmm, wonder what I wonder what I'll do. Okay, I'm gonna go inside to my essence, or maybe I go outside in nature and I get grounded. But you know, I do something that's whole being aware that isn't just here in the mind, like, oh gosh, what should I do? What should I do? How do I solve this? Don't just call one person and get advice. You know, I really try to to saturate myself in the capacity to tap into wisdom on varying levels. And then it comes, it arrives. And it doesn't arrive right away. Sometimes it takes weeks or months of diligent listening for that and being on the fence in a, I've been on the fence in a state of confusion for months at a time here and there. So my heart goes out to any listeners that are there, but conscious bravery is being able to to handle it all and find a solution that is temporary or on the way toward permanent, you know, but we make a choice and then we, we might alter that choice down the road, but we make a decision to be awake, alive, aware, and present. Mm-hmm, absolutely. I just want to here wrap up with the final question about, uh, as a non-therapist, but I'm really interested in that, what uh, therapy techniques are you using? Because they, they are working, right? And I, I can sense that. So uh, what, what are some of the uh, methods and approaches that you're using? 
I use somatic experiencing a lot. And that's a big phrase for basically being in our bodies and our hearts and our minds all together and noticing what's happening. And so, for example, you might have an experience, Arash, where you have um, tightness in your throat, let's say, or your shoulders might get tight, or you might get queasy. And if you don't pay attention to that, how do you know what's really happening? So we listen to our bodies the same way we would listen to our best friend. Our bodies are these beautiful containers that we've been given in this life. So we listen to our bodies. So that's one method. I also do any number of other things. I do EMDR at times, which means eye movement, desensitization and reprocessing. And so I'll partner with my clients in helping them get out of the stuckness of their pattern minds and store old material differently so that it's not as traumatic and be able to find their own answers and solutions. And that's what EMDR is about. It's not about me putting something on you or my client. So that's one. I also, I also believe in, I was trained in play therapy years and years ago when I was a young therapist in my twenties. And I still believe in bringing play into things. So I might have a client stand up and, you know, maybe say, okay, you were just kind of moving when you were talking about that. Why don't you make that bigger? You know, and then we might pretty soon be kind of dancing. Like, can you dance on running water? That's kind of a Zen Cohen, really, if you will. But can you play with this challenge? Can you be in your body and kind of be moving and just see what happens? Um, From another colleague, I learned a practice that I've changed quite a bit, but it's called DISCO. So I I teach practices that have acronyms. And and you can read my book or go on my website if you're interested in that one. There's um, a tool on my website called DISCO. And I won't explain it because it's kind of lengthy, but it only takes a couple minutes to do. And so we use protocols that get us outside of our our patterning, our our responses that are ingrained, and we try to break free from those. And so I use a lot of different practices that do that. I also do a lot of, of, lot of listening, and I'll say, can you say that back out loud to me in a bigger way? Or can you say, can you say that in a way where you're like, I had a client the other day who was going like this while they were talking to me. And I said, can you say that back to me and make that even bigger? What's that about? And then they started crying. So they were, they were rubbing for those of us, uh, those of the listeners who can't see, they were rubbing their face as if a tear was going down it when it wasn't, but they were just making emotion. But I think there was a tear coming. And so I'm not going to tell people what to feel or experience, but I'll tell them what they're doing. Like, huh, did you notice how your voice just got louder? Or wow, did you notice what you said two sentences ago? You said your mom would never have allowed that. What's that like for you? So I I do a lot of inquiry and questioning and trying to help my clients explore who they really are and start to be that. And so that's another piece of conscious bravery. We learn to be our true selves rather than what someone else wants for us to be or what we think somebody else wants or needs us to be we really learn to be our truest selves and that comes about by really exploring who we haven't been who we are who we're becoming 
And so I might have people make a collage with a past, present, future and cut out photos of who did I used to be? Huh? What's that look like visually? Can you make it 3D? Can you put words up that kind of stand out and bend them? And then who are you now? And who are you becoming? And I had a client who made that in a big circle and put it up on their wall for a while and kept adding to it. So it all I flows love art. together. It all flows yeah. together because then we might be angry with the past selves. Like, well, I used to be like this. I used to be shy and used to be scared. But you had to go through that to be where you're at now. So it's it's a whole process. And it's like the judgment doesn't help. And it's actually, I don't know why you would judge anyway. Just kind of notice it, though, because that brings it into, into awareness. And you see, oh, my God, I've, I've, I've done a lot. I've succeeded a lot. I've progressed a lot. And that is, I think, important. So that, I like that, that, that collage thing, like looking at this is who right. I used to be and this is uh, who I am now. Even like just yesterday, when I compare, like even like within uh, smaller time spans, like, oh, this used to annoy me yesterday and now I'm fine with it. Right? And uh, take really? note of that. Yeah. Very astute to notice, yeah. to notice even the judgment. Huh, <laughs> like I'm really judging. Wow, yeah. I'm really hard on me. Huh. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and not being uh, hard on uh, being hard on yourself too, because that can continue. Uh, wonderful conversation. I enjoyed very much. Uh, Pamela Brinker, your book is Conscious Bravery Caring for Someone with Addiction. And uh, caring is so important self care, caring for others, caregivers. And uh, thank you so much uh, for, for being in a rashes world. Oh, it's a delight to talk with you and to be with your listeners. Thank you for the honor. Thank you. Take care.